Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. Today, I'm talking about women, faculty, the pandemic, and juggling. That's right, (laughs) juggling. (laughs) But not fruit, life, right? So when the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, started, we certainly know everybody kind of went home, things closed, essential businesses were open, schools um, closed down for in-person, everything kind of moved to um, this kind of remote life that we continue to live a bit. Um, and what ended up happening or revealing, being revealed during this major transition is that working women and femmes have been hit with tons of additional burdens um, that resulted in many, many women stepping out of the workforce. So just in the U.S. alone, um, as of uh, February of this year, about 3 million women uh, stepped out of the workforce, a figure roughly four times that of men, Um, closed childcare facilities, caregiving, persistent role, um, gender roles, really just um, resulted in women kind of saying, I I can't do everything, so I'm just going to quit and pull back and do the things that I need to do at home. Earlier this year, um, the National Academies of Science released a report arguing that academic women, for our purposes, um, veterinary medical education, lost so much ground, specifically in STEM. Women are not able to get into their labs. They're not publishing um, at the same rate as their male counterparts during the pandemic because of the additional burdens, um, just not quite as, air quote, productive um, in terms of academic roles, certainly productive in other spaces, but not productive um, in this particular space. So we really, I just kind of wanted to talk a bit about what this has been like and look at it from different perspectives. So to discuss all of this um, for uh, academic veterinary medicine, I'm joined by four incredible women who I just love and adore and just admire so much, Drs. Debbie Kuchiver, Mandy Martineau, Lubna Nasser, and Tamara Hancock. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Awesome. So um, as we get on into this, I love for guests to tell tell us all a little bit about themselves. So Debbie, we're going to start with you. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's actually really good to see you. Uh, It's well, virtually see you. So my name is Debbie Cochever. Um, I am broadcasting from Grafton, Massachusetts, which is about 40 miles uh, west of Boston, close to uh, Cumming School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University, where I've, uh, I've worked at Tufts for about, oh, nearly 15 years now. But really, I hail from Texas, spent 21 years at Texas A&M. I'm a veterinarian, uh, a PhD in cell molecular biology, and pretty much just love to teach. And so I spent a lot of time in the classroom but then also, uh, I guess in the last 10 to 12 years, have really become um, uh, interested in, engaged in One Health, and even beyond the One Health, the science of One Health, sort of the diplomacy of One Health. How do we get all the parts of our world that are human, animal, and the environment to actually talk together? Because uh, if you just look at COVID, there's a lot of reasons why those communications need to go on to solve problems that affect everybody. So, uh, so. I'm here today as a faculty member at Tufts, and I very much appreciate joining. Whoops, you're muted. Just because we have to have one COVID quote, you're muted <laughs> on <Like one laughs> the podcast. So we're going to go to uh, Mandy. Mandy, uh, also at Tufts, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, so um, uh, just like um, Debbie, I'm also faculty, a fairly new assistant professor um, at Tufts uh, Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. Um, I'm also a veterinarian and I'm a uh, anatomic pathologist as well. So um, I do basic science research. Um, my primary research focus is actually on um, tuberculosis vaccines. But because of my um, my side hustle as a pathologist um, during the COVID pandemic, I uh, became very, very much involved in um, helping to validate the animal models that we were using to uh, look at uh, COVID-19 pathology, SARS-CoV-2, trying to figure out which animal models we could use to um, develop vaccines and therapeutics. And so... My experience has been a little bit different in the sense that I actually got a lot more work <laughs> during the pandemic, but it was very difficult to do because I had to do it at home. <laughs> so um, thank you for, for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Sure, sure. All right. We're going to go to Tamara. Oh, well, hello, uh, Tamara Hancock. I use she, her pronouns. I'm at the University of Missouri. I'm also a veterinarian and um, a pathologist, but a clinical pathologist, and I wear a lot of different hats. So I'm a new assistant teaching professor here in veterinary pathology, but I also have a PhD in education. And so that kind of necessarily puts you in these different search, uh, circumstances where um, folks want you in an administrative role. So I coordinate uh, their curricular and student outcomes for the college, and I'm the director for academic success. Um, here at the University of Missouri. Um, my research really focuses on the social context of learning and becoming uh, veterinarians and veterinary students. So kind of like that professional identity development. Um, and yeah, I am a mom. Um, and so I've taken on caregiving roles um, that have been brand new over the past uh, year and a half now, I think. Um, but I'm very gracious um, and humbled to be a part of this panel. And thank you for the invitation, Lisa. Absolutely. Welcome. Welcome. And last but certainly not least, Lovna. Oh, thank you very much, Lisa. Um, like everyone else, I'm delighted to be here on the panel. So my name is Lovna Nasser. I identify as she, her. So a little bit about me. I'm a British-born Pakistani. Um, I live in Glasgow. I'm at University of Glasgow and I work at the School of Veterinary Medicine. Numerous hats. I do a lot of teaching. I teach in the veterinary medicine degree program. I do a lot of teaching on the bachelor veterinary science program as well. Um, still managing to do some research. And one of my other main roles in the School of Veterinary Medicine is that I'm the associate head for diversity and inclusion um, in our school. Like Tamara, I'm, I'm also a mum and yes that has brought numerous challenges to to our lives um, and also we we care for myself and my partner we care for my husband's mother as well so there's a bit of elder care involved as yeah. well as child care um, as well so yes I, I'm delighted to be part of this conversation I think we've got lots lots to talk about absolutely so thank you Thank you. Thank you all. Lisa, yeah. I feel I feel remiss that I didn't say I'm a mom too, <laughs> except that my kids Been are here. 33 and 36. So so they weren't exactly homeschooling, but yes. Yes, I was dealing with um toddler care, which I feel, felt like we could get into the challenges of of uh, starting your academic career with a uh, four-month-old. So Oh my! And then, and then hitting, then hitting the pandemic right when you were starting to actually get to work. <laughs> oh wow! Yes. Yeah. So, uh, for folks that don't know, I'm also uh, a mom. So we've got a whole mom squad here. My daughter <laughs> is now 20. She is home because of the pandemic, <laughs> and it's been interesting. And so, <laughs> it's been great. I'm glad that she's here. It's been interesting. There's been yeah. some juggling, even <laughs> if she is 20. So let's talk a little bit pre-pandemic. And Debbie, I'm going to start with you because you served in a number of different roles, right, um, in academia. And I really am kind of curious to hear just your perspective on what are some of those challenges just pre-pandemic um, or, you know, what we will probably continue to see post-pandemic <laughs> when it's all over that are experienced by faculty who are identify as women. 
You know, it's such a such a rich topic. Uh, maybe rich isn't the right word, but uh, but I, I remember, Mandy, your comments really reminded took, took me back to when uh, I had my children. I was finishing up my PhD and starting a faculty position at Texas A and M, and and uh, and that you know continued obviously when the kids were growing up. I was going through the ranks, and so it, it really impacts every piece of what you do. But but in an interesting way, I would say it's a positive impact. Um, and I, that doesn't mean it's always positive in terms of time, but I think the fact that you have that dimension to your life and, and your priorities become so, in many ways, focused on your on your kids and how they're going to do. Uh, and so you're lucky as an academician because mostly you do have some flexibility in a schedule. Not always. Again, none of these are absolutes, but I just remember, you know, the book fairs, right? I was like a big book fair supporter in my kids' elementary school. And, and you could actually manage yourself so you could go and work the book fair. And so um, on one hand, I just think in the dimensions, again, that kids add to your lives are just priceless. And so, so I think that is a, a plus, but it just means that you as a woman and you already have this tendency to be able to just like just get down and work your buns off that you that actually encourages you to do that, which works for about 20 years. And then you start to say, wow, you know, maybe I should balance this better. And so I think the progression for me has just been, you know, to continue to do that really for a very long time. I, I was fortunate to be uh, a senior administrator at the vet school here at Tufts and then at the main university. And in all those roles, you just you just have to put your head down and say, I'm going to get it all done. Um, and, and you do. But it is at some cost that people should recognize earlier than I did and, and probably do better at balancing. Are the academic systems really uh, designed to help you with that balance? Certainly we know that, yes, there is some flexibility. We work at, like, there's so many memes about the Scholastic Book, book Fair. Like, I <laughs> <laughs> So I was, was a book great. Kid. Um, Clifford, was Clifford great. the like, Big Red Dog was my favorite. <laughs> you get that $15 and you think like, I am rich. I like going to the book fair. Um, but, you know, beyond that kind of self-managed juggling, um, you know, does the, um, does the higher ed system really, is it really supportive? Is it, you know, what are some of those elements? And, and certainly anybody can can, can hop in here um, pre-pandemic. Like, what are some of those things that really um, allowed you to really pursue the aspiration of having a more balanced life, like, before the 20-year clock? <laughs> I, I think, um, at least here in the, the UK, so we've been very much involved in the Athena Swan gender equality charter now for, for several years. And, and that has made a huge difference, I think, to academia and higher education in that it's brought this agenda to the table and it's discussed. And you know, we have family-friendly working policies. We provide support for women. It's not perfect. And we still don't think we've always got parity um, but there's been a significant improvement, I think, for women. I think, um, as you were mentioning, Debbie, you know, that the balancing has always been, it's a challenge and it continues to be a challenge. And um, I think, again, like like you, in my earlier career, it's like you you just get down, get on with it. You get down and you do the work and you, you just have to do it. You find find a way but there are consequences to that you know you do then experience some burnout and, and I do think there has been a slight shift through particularly Athena Swan in that we do put measures in place we do provide a lot more support we for example have core working hours um, between sort of 10 and 4 or 10 and 3 which means that people with children are able to drop them off at school and pick up from school and you know those sort of small small adjustments great. have been have been great you know particularly for me and without the pressure of thinking oh my gosh I'm going to be late for a meeting I'm not going to be there so it allows you to have a bit more sort of balance um so I think that has been really really positive for us I think the issue of workload still exists I think and I'm sure we'll come on to, to that um, later on. But I think there's some of the sort of key points that I, I 
think are important sort of pre-pandemic and that we we have moved forward. I think there are many, many issues that we still need to, to resolve. But my concern is I think we've now taken a, a back step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are in STEM in general, um, there are about 27, uh, 27% of STEM faculty are women. Right. Um, in veterinary medicine, that's a bit higher, um, but women still don't make up a full half of, of faculty. They're getting there. Um, and I think that we'll probably see it sometime, um, hopefully in the next decade or so. But, um, you know, that there's still a fair amount of underrepresentation. We're starting to certainly see that much better representation among the administrator ranks. But how does that kind of underrepresentation or kind of minoritized ex- experience, um, what is that like for academic women? And so, uh, Tamara, we'll, start oh, with yeah. you and we'll come to you in a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think like that um, in conversation with what uh, Debbie was mentioning in the beginning about being able to have flexibility in our schedule as professors is certainly a privilege. But I think as a woman and being underrepresented in your department or in your field, um, even maybe saying out loud, oh, I'm gonna, I'm bagging off this afternoon because I'm gonna go run the book fair for my kid. I never said that. You, <laughs> you can't. Like <laughs> That's it, yeah. right? Like you can't. And it's not, yeah. I think it's um it's that would that doesn't feel welcome to kind of live your full little self and bring that to the table. And I think it contributes as as a junior faculty, and I don't know how much Mandy would kind of put on this. Like there's these questions that come up for me. Is this like, is this because I'm a junior? Is this because I'm junior and new? Is this because I'm a woman? Is this because I'm a mother? Is this all of those things? None of these things. Is it all in my head? And so these kinds of feelings of being an imposter and not knowing what I'm doing and if I'm doing it right. And then like that just kind of puts in the mix of being first gen and like, I wish someone would have like helped me like level up class wise (laughs) to navigate these spaces. Um, I mean, I think that it really does um, kind of contribute to the questions of like, am I worthy of being here or is this all in my head? Am I sane? Should I get help? I mean, I should get help for other reasons, I'm sure. But like, is this a part of it? Does it need to come up in my therapy session? Um, you know, I think it's it's that and then in conjunction with a lack of kind of solidarity or allyship, right? Like certainly there's plenty of men who are in caregiving roles, whether parental or elder care or any other caregiving roles that may be able to help um, kind of have a chilling effect on this cultural, social norm of like, we're not going to say I'm going to the book fair. I'm not going to say I'm going to the Valentine's party at my kid's daycare. I'm just going to go away. Um, and then that, you work could twice be as hard, right? You work right. twice as hard to do whatever right. it was you didn't do when you were gone to the book fair. So, yep. yeah. And, and like pretend to not be racked with guilt the whole time in both spaces. Absolutely. Yeah. Mandy was going to say well, something. I was just going to say that um, it's funny because um, uh, Debbie started the, the conversation and I have this, I don't think it's appropriate, but um, I have learned not to mention that you know, that I have children right away or that this actually impacts as a professional and having been um, sort of in the, uh, I mean, we're, it's, it's a refreshing thing to be at a veterinary school because there's so many women and so many women with children. But for the last 15 years, I've actually been um, at the downtown medical center, uh, Harvard School of Public Health, Harvard Medical School, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And it is extremely male. It's not only are they all physicians, but they're extremely, it's extremely male dominated. And at some point, um, I've just basically learned that that is not what I want people to know first off, because it will automatically give them some perspective of me that I, you know, they won't think of me as a scientist first. They'll think of me as a mother first, and that will establish certain expectations or lack of expectation for that reason. And so I have learned not to mention that right off the bat until I'm in a safe place. (laughs) And so I was so, it was so refreshing for Tamara to be like, I have children and that's what we're talking about here. And I was like, yes, that's great. I can say it too now, (laughs) but it's true. And I've even had, um, you know, like now the NIH has instituted, like they have this, this mechanism where as a woman, if you've, 
had children or you've had setbacks from maternity leaves and things like that, that you can actually sort of write that into your progress report. And I, I remember, um, having one of my former mentors, uh, review my, my progress report. And he was like, or my, my application for promotion to like instructor. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, don't, don't put any of that in there. It's like, just don't like, you don't need, you don't need to put that. So essentially he was, you know, I could have put it in, but he was like, just focus on your accomplishments. Like, don't, you don't need to, you know, I would, I would steer away from that. And so. Because, you know, having, parenting is not an accomplishment. No, I'm like, just like, but, you know, so I mean, everybody says that there, these, these things are coming into place, but it, depending on where you are, it's like, they say it, but, but there's this still this feeling that I shouldn't do it, that, you know, I should only do it as a last resort. Like if I really haven't done enough to like get that promotion or get tenure or get that next grant, um, then I might want to throw that in there as a last resort. And wow. it's it's like not not a part of the story. It's an excuse. For right. like, what have you managed different. to accomplish? And if, if that doesn't me- measure up quite to where you think you should be, maybe you could you could sort of use that as your like, you know, your excuse. <laughs> But I find it really, really interesting because, you know, we started with, I mean, we haven't even talked about, we haven't even mentioned the pandemic yet. We're going to yeah. get there. <laughs> like, but, you know, this idea that, okay, so you have this flexibility. So I'm going to go work, you know, the book fair because um, the book fair is really important. But we don't tell anybody because there's a price to pay. Like, just know that that's a part of the problem. <laughs> that is a part doctors, of the problem. Doctors' appointments are are acceptable. P- childcare pickup has become acceptable. So when I'm like five o'clock, I'm out. Like that's everybody's like, okay, we can't ask her to stay later. That's fine. Um, but but the book fair, no. With the <laughs> fact that we probably you know folks that um, are um, have parented young kids or kids that need outside you know caregiving while we're working also typically know that there is a drop time where things mm-hmm. become more expensive. <laughs> it's usually like By the minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just, just as a marker, because it's fascinating listening to, listening to you guys and really encouraging that things are changing. Uh, definitely more to change. But I just remember first child, Texas, a long time ago, you know, pregnancy was an illness. You had to mm-hmm. take your sick leave. That was effectively maternity leave. So, so I, you know, I notice, and it's not just for women, but for women and men, at least we're moving closer. And I think Europe did this a long time ago, right? We, the U.S. is not forging any frontiers here. Um, that we're getting a little better, but uh, hopefully we'll keep going that direction. Even yeah. in Massachusetts, it's still disability leave. Yeah, seriously. Disability. That's great. Good enough. Our, our eight weeks is short-term disability. And so when I started at, at, at BI, um, that was the, you, if you did not register for your short, because it was an option to get short-term disability. And if you did not pay that extra $14 a paycheck to get short-term disability, you were effectively, uh, not going to be able to have paid maternity leave. And, and nobody told me that. I just happened to know that. (laughs) I was like telling every pregnant woman or any woman of reproductive age on my floor, like if you, when they got hired, make sure you sign up for your short-term disability, because that is your maternity leave. Okay, maybe things haven't changed that much on that count. It just repackaged. Wow. Yep. My one of the um, one of the OBGYN uh, physicians on my um, in my department, she was having her third child, and she switched jobs from being a primary care physician as an OBGYN at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to being a primary research appointment. And she she could not take maternity leave because she hadn't been in her job for a full year because her job title changed, even though she was at the same institution. And so she did not could not get paid maternity leave as an OBGYN at the hospital where she worked for her third child. And so it was sort of like this hush hush, like, well, you know, take your time off, but just don't you're working on grants. Just don't come to work because she could not get it because of that, that, that technicality okay. I, I just I just, it's appalling like we're in Massachusetts like we're supposed to be like I mean, healthcare wise we are making some strides that other states haven't done yet in terms of like you know health insurance and I it's just amazing it's truly amazing <laughs> I think it's definitely harder for more 
more junior staff and if you're new to an organization then you know if you, you don't know what the sort of culture is in the place of whether you can say actually I'm gonna I need to go and pick up children or um and I, I think perhaps you know it is it's just perhaps been older and been, I've been in our institute now my whole career in fact um, and now I'm not afraid of just saying if it's Christmas mm-hmm. time and the kids are in their school nativity or school show I will just say no I'm not attending that meeting because my kids are in I'm going to go and, and see this and I think I guess I've, it, there's some sort of privilege there because I'm established I've been there mm-hmm. some time but I think by doing that I it's sort of opening it up for the more junior staff to be able to say, well, actually, if you can do it, surely I can do it. And we can do it. Staff can do it. You can take flexible leave. You know, you can work extra hours. And so there are ways around around doing it. It's just that there is a fear of actually talking about it. You know, so there's a fear of of mentioning it. And I I definitely think that's harder for more junior colleagues. Wow. So, uh, now we're going to talk, we're going to like, so this is, this is just for everyone that's watching and listening. This is before we even get to the pandemic. <laughs> and I know that some people have heard me talk about just trash environments. I'm sure where everybody works is a lovely, lovely place, but policies and practices sometimes create situations that are just less than hospitable. Right. And so we've heard some examples of that. So what have you observed um, are some of the unique challenges that have been brought about by the pandemic. And Lebanon, I'm going to start with you just because you kind of, you kind of um, uh, uh, previewed a little bit of a sandwich <laughs> caregiving situation you've got going. Um, because certainly we talk a lot about, um, you know, uh, uh, kids, but we don't also talk about the fact that none of us are getting any younger. And so, you know, sometimes we have parents and aunties and uncles and other folks that, you know, we also have to look out for. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we are, we're sort of, we've got, I mean, our children are 10 and 10 and 12, um, but we're also looking after my my husband's mum, who's sort of in her in her late seventies, and she lives on her own. And you know, it was about making sure that she was supported during lockdown, partly because we were all in isolation um, for her own mental health. And I mean, quite honestly, when I look back on that very first lockdown, I'm not, not quite sure how we did it. You know, I, I think you just pulled your sleeve, rolled your sleeves up, and, and got on with it because there, there wasn't a choice. You know, with two kids at home, homeschooling. The eldest was pretty much all right doing it by herself. The youngest needed a bit more support, but my husband's also an academic and we just did not have the time to support them. It was literally throw food at you at lunchtime and then back to the computer and the whole pivoting to online. And I think that's been one of the impacts that I've seen on my female colleagues is that whole pivoting everything to online and the amount of time and effort and work that that has involved has been phenomenal. You know, it's been a huge, huge workload. Um, so that's been really, really tricky. And, you know, somehow we sort of came through it, but it was a pretty awful, awful experience that none of us, particularly the children, um, don't want to have to, to revisit And I think in terms of some of my colleagues as well, we've also had during that first lockdown, we still had some staff working on campus. You know, some of our clinical academics were still and, you know, the stress and the anxiety associated with that whilst in the pandemic in terms of worrying about their health, worrying about, you know, are they going to take COVID home um, to shielding relatives that were so so many dimensions to it particularly during that that first pandemic I think I think we got better um over time but we all know that the majority of the care and responsibilities fall on on women as well that you know we still end up doing the the labor but it's also the emotional labor as well it's not just the making food sure there's food on the table it's just dealing with the the emotional aspect of it 
as well. You know, I think for some families, it's been keeping the family together. We've been in a crisis. It's, you know, how do you keep a family together, particularly where you've got children that have been away at university and they come home and everybody's back in the same environment. It might be tight, tight for space. I mean, I've heard really horrendous stories of, you know, people not having space, having to use an ironing board, for example, really early on as a desk. Um, you know, fortunately, our institution were great at resolving issues around that. But, you know, it's all and there's lots of things about privilege that came out as well. You know, if you've got a big house and a garden and um, to so many, so many, yeah. many aspects yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even, you know, the housing market. So we have a, a really strong housing market here um, in the D.C. area. But, you know, the f- open floor plan, that's gone. Like, <laughs> nobody wants an open floor plan. Everybody wants their own room. Get away from me. <laughs> and I need a place to, 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 to um, you know, work because we're all home. Um, Amanda, you mentioned you kind of started out. <laughs> you got a little, little bitty baby. And... Uh, then you know work productivity went up during the you know during the pandemic so so what's what's it been like it's um first of all I have to say that it it, it, I've been extremely fortunate because um my husband was forced to work from home and so I had somebody at the house um which made things um a little bit easier um, for us, but uh, but we have a we have an almost ten year old son, and we have a two and a half year old daughter now. And I started at Tufts um, right after I finished my maternity leave, um, and so it you know it takes about a year I think to kind of get yourself established and you know write protocols. And I was doing tuberculosis research, which is in a biosafety level three, and so there was a lot more steps involved trying to get research off the ground and. Um, when the pandemic hit, hit um, basically not only um, was, you know, anything like that sort of considered non-essential uh, research, but essentially all the personal protective equipment that we use to do BSL-3 research was taken by the hospitals. And we donated like everything that we could find to the hospitals. Um, so you couldn't, even if you weren't allowed to work, there was no PPE available to do my research, essentially. Um and uh, and I had a I had a I had a newborn baby, and so um, so there was absolutely no working at home during the workday. Um, so for the first four weeks, um, essentially, I would start working at eight o'clock at night and work to like two or three in the morning. Um, it was it was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting. And uh, again, my son was basically thrown to the wolves. I mean, the good news is he got to have the experience of sort of having that, you know, childhood where you're out running around outside and you just hope that, you know, that he doesn't get eaten or stolen or something. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, never, I, was never that, I was never that kind of parent. But I, at the end of it, the only good thing I can say about this pandemic is that he has had the kind of childhood now that at least the past year that that people talk about wistfully, you know, I mean, running around the neighborhood, we don't know where he is. It feels very uh, irresponsible. <laughs> um, but 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 uh, we had to hire a nanny, um, which is extremely expensive, especially in the Boston area. And um, I think that when we talk about these some of the challenges as veterinarians, women in academia, it's the fact that um, there is still an income gap. Um, academics are certainly not paid nearly as well as in private practice. And so you couple that with then needing to absolutely 100% hire a full-time nanny. Um, it's it's uh, financially um, could be catastrophic if you don't have a two-income household or if you don't have those resources available. So for the first three to four weeks where we didn't have the nanny hired, um, it, was, it was very, very hard. And then it got very easy but every time the nanny came in, you know, she was bringing her kid because it was a nanny share because I couldn't afford to do a full time nanny. So she had her own children <laughs> coming to my house uh, and they had like a second family like she was her husband had four other kids. And so that lived in Rhode Island. And so it was literally like this fear of of somebody getting covid in our our our, our and, and we literally had, you know, three adults two babies and two 10-year-old boys in one house every single day um, for the next six months. Um, And it was 
you know, at some point they let me go back to the lab because I, I was as a veterinarian and, and a pathologist, I became essential. I started working on the SARS-CoV-2 work and I was essential at that point. So I could leave the house, which, you know, was a, was a treat. Excitedly. <laughs> was a treat. But, you know, everybody else here, I mean, we're still dealing with the emotional aftermath of um, my son and my husband being in close quarters for um, almost 18 months. Um, and, <laughs> And I think that to your point, Lavna, you know, the the emotional burden, um, not only are you trying to feed the kids, but when it comes to are your kids developing appropriately, are they getting the right kind of interactions that they need? Are they having a healthy mental lifestyle? Like that's the stuff I, I'm worried about is, you know, you know, the toddler having the right emotional stimulation, um, that my son having a normal, normal interactions with other children his age. And so when you as a, as a, you know, as a, as a woman, as a mother, um, I feel like I'm bearing all that stress of like, yeah. you know, what is the, what is going to be the aftermath of him being in close quarters with his dad and then like this all day long? We, we so. just threw iPads at our children um, because it's just like, well, you know, it's a crisis, it's fine, they can have iPads. Now, trying to get them off the iPads. Exactly, is, it's exactly. It's, it's a like huge challenge. So many, so many, um, there's so much ricochet, I think, that's going to come off of this mm. pandemic. I know that's one of the things that you were going to get to, Lisa, but I think that we are all going to be dealing with some sort of like uh, ricochet of effects of, of the things that we've had to do. Um, so to, to be continued. <laughs> yes, yes. Tamara, how's it going out there, Missouri? Ooh, we're doing all right. Uh, Delta hotspot. Just for me. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I think like the during the stay at home, my husband is a newspaper reporter. He works from home a lot. So it was at, we invaded his workspace um, and we worked it out. Um, we figured it out and we balanced it to the best we could. Right. But we our kid turned five and then he just turned six um, during all of this. And he's not a very autonomous kid. We didn't already have an iPad or anything like that. And we were trying to balance, like, how much do we just prop you in front of something because mom or dad's got to get stuff done. Um, and, or, you know, there's also some benefit to learning to be bored, right? Like <laughs> we were trying to think like, you know, how can we, um, still try to parent in ways that feel true to how we want to parent. Um, but I mean, like you just, Mandy describing her house situation, like I felt my heart rate elevate just thinking because it's just myself, my husband and a five-year-old um, and a small dog in this small little ranch home in Columbia, Missouri. And like the rest of that is a lot. Um, so yeah, I, I, like we figured it out. Um, but I think some of that stuff that pre-pandemic folds over into what makes the pandemic hard are um, kind of that double shift aspect of women's work at work and then you come home and you're also the primary caregiver and you're also the prime the manager of household tasks right um it's not that perhaps our spouses don't help um but they ask us what needs to be done which presumes mm -hmm. that we are the managers of the tasks because mm -hmm. we are keeping all those things in our head right um and so during COVID times then because your the day is so fragmented and there's things you still have to do like I started to do what felt like third shifts so there was like I would work or trade off primary caregiving with my husband we would try to do family time at dinner and then like there's the kids in bed I work again um to just get the stuff done that I had to get done for the day um and I think that emotional labor piece is really huge um you know, helping not just my family um, and myself, but also students that I work with, colleagues that I work with, right? Like we tend to take on those roles, whether we perceive that expectation or that expectation is foisted upon us. But um, that became a really real part of processing our collective trauma that fell on, I think, a lot of women's shoulders. Um, the flip side is that you're just at home. And that was, I was working in my basement and it's unfinished and it is a mess. And I did not blur. I think that was pre blurred black backgrounds. And so I was just like, this is what it is y'all. <laughs> how we're working. Um, I'm not trying to hide it. I don't have a pretty background. I'm just doing the best I can to survive. And I think um, something that we've all talked about like that 
the the paradox of being a professional woman, right? Like where we have to show up and behave in this very masculine world and not talk about those things that make us women. Um, that just the bandage just got ripped straight off, right? Like your kid comes into the Zoom call or they bounce through or your dog barfs or what, like that is just here now. And we're just going to do it. This is what makes me whole. Um, and so I think like there's a part of that was kind of freeing. Like I, it was scary because I didn't have a choice, right? How much to be vulnerable. The world just made that choice for me. But I think that it, um, in some ways, for me personally, helped me feel more, um, I don't know, like self-assured or confident and in living into the paradox of being a woman in a professional field who's a faculty member in a college of veterinary medicine that says like, I got a kid and I'm going to go to the book fair or I'm going to the mm -hmm. Valentine's party. I'm going to get a sugar rush or like I'm bagging out six. It's my kid's birthday and he gets his day off school and I take the day off work and we eat donuts and do whatever the hell we want. So like that, that was like um, kind of the good and the bad mashed together as far as like the unique challenges of the pandemic. But um, you know, that, there were a lot of things and especially that most emotional labor and the added, I always talk about it being, we're juggling things, but it's not like things. These are like running chainsaws that are sometimes lit on fire that we're just trying to not cut ourselves or anyone else around us. And like, there was just a lot more added um, to juggle um, during the stay at home time. And even now thinking about navigating back to school, not just for our students here in the college, but I don't have another year to press pause on kindergarten. We're just going in this year. We're going to see how it goes. So yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, um, you know, the, a, the, whatever normal is, is still to be determined. Um, you know, I just saw an article this morning about, Hey, so is handshaking ever going to come back? Personally? No, don't even, <laughs> don't, don't try to shake my We're head. good. I'm done with that. I'm done with that particular social moray. I'm done. But <laughs> You know, these things of, you know, Zoom interruptions and I mean, you know, uh, uh, folks that don't even know that my daughter literally like does not get dressed until she is nearly walking out of the door to her job. So there's going to be a purple room just kind of wandering aimlessly in the background of my Zoom. So, you know, I think that that certainly there has been some flexibility and how do you, you know, I do think that that the world is trying to figure out how to get some of that back into Pandora's box. Um, but, you know, I, a, a question that I, I have um, and, and Debbie, right with you is what are some of the things that um, that the higher that higher ed systemically can do um, maybe to, to kind of help address um, the ground loss, especially by women during the pandemic? Um, you know, what, yeah, what can we do? And then, you know, for, for, I'm certainly interested in other ideas that you all have about that. What, what can we do? What can the systemically, what can we do? I think right now it's, it's not just about the pandemic. It's, yeah. you, know, you take Black Lives Matter, you take the pandemic. I mean, really even the Olympics, Right. Some of the stories out of the Olympics where people just said, oh, I'm done. You know, I can't do this. I'm going to break my neck if I try to do this, this thing because I'm not ready to do that thing. And so I think um, universities, I, I think you'd have to be under a rock not to recognize that this is a very pervasive and, and it's not just women. Um, I think women may be differentially perhaps affected, but it is not just women. Yeah. And so I, I, I see universities uh, and Tufts is a very liberal you know, welcoming place. Uh, so I can't comment on just universities writ large, but I do see a concerted effort to try to be more, I'm going to say compassionate, and they were compassionate to begin with, but, um, and it's maybe not all out of the goodness of their heart, the faculty are going to start demanding that, right? Mm -hmm. they, they've seen all these pressures and, you know, just this sense of exhaustion from, from all the comments that you just had from, from this panel, you know, the net effect is there's a point past which you just can't keep at it. And someone mentioned, and I think this is often overlooked, getting everything online, the amount of work that was required for women and men to, to move their courses online and then start to function online with everything else they're doing, it just, it just snowballed. And so I believe that the administration saw that, that they recognized it, and that there's a lot of now faculty effort to try to find solutions that are sustainable, right? Universities aren't made of money. 
that they, they are going to have to do that in a realistic way, but it doesn't feel like you have to justify it as hard anymore. Um, and, and I don't know, I'd be very interested to know if, if you guys feel the same way. Um, I think for me, what I've really become aware of recently that we really need to try and support staff and colleagues with is, is the burnout. I think, you know, I'm seeing we've really been encouraged by our institution to take annual leave. Now, we've been encouraged throughout the pandemic to take annual leave for our mental health. Um, but people just didn't do it because they were like, well, I'm at home, you know, I've got nowhere to go. I'm confined, you know. This is not academic leave if I'm sitting in the house. You know, I used to go to the supermarket and get excited about going to the supermarket. <laughs> the only time I could get away from it. Turn your radio on on the drive. Yeah. <laughs> listen to what you want to listen to. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think because uh, the school holidays here in, in Scotland finished at the end of June, my colleagues I have been taking time off over June and, and July. And, you know, just just even on Twitter and talking to people, you know, people have taken that time off. They haven't completely switched off. They're responding to emails because, you know, it's that fear of you, what, what you come back to. But now what I'm also picking up on is this sort of anxiety returning to work after having academic leave. And, and I think that's all really linked into this sort of burnout the idea that we're going into our next academic session in, in a month's time, again, most of it will be online or more blended. And we've already been through the pivoting of that, and it was so difficult. And I think staff know that this next period is going to be really, really tricky, a lot of hard work. And I think people are struggling. I particularly find that really, really difficult. It's like, how, how do we navigate this next semester and I think that's one of the things that I really think we need support from is whether it's taking mental health breaks taking mental health days off and I know some institutions have instigated that where you know you can take a mental health break because you just need time out um, so I think that really needs to be sort of an immediate priority before we start the next academic session I'm sorry, hopefully you can hear me. I'm in our loft, which I ended up in during COVID, and it's raining, torrential rain here in Glasgow. <laughs> can't hear any of it. It sounds great. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, that, that um, Lovna, you raised several important points, you know, including uh, take your leave, take time, be okay. And it's like, okay, so I'm going to take leave. I'm going to be stuck in the same house. <laughs> with the same people and I'm just going from my makeshift desk to the couch like it's not <laughs> like that's the trip and and like you yes I get really excited about you know going to Target like I mean like way too excited get going to Target right and so um you know what um like I said before, the 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 new normal is still to be determined um, with future lockdowns. Um, certainly, uh, Europe seems quick to, to lock things down. Lockdowns in the U.S. are situational, shall we say, <laughs> situational, geographically kind of diverse. Um, you know, what do you all, what do you all are, what are you most looking forward to and what are you most kind of fearful in terms of, of um, this next, let's just say semester um, of academic life? Yes, I'm going to chime in right now because I am truly fearful of this. So I mentioned my husband was forced to stay at home, right? Um, and he has to go back to uh, to the lab or to his office at least a few days a week. Um, and he works in Cambridge and we live in Southborough. So it's like, you know, a good hour and a half commute on the train. Um, the only way we've even been able to remotely manage what we've been doing is because he was home. Um, and I am terrified of one of my children turning up positive, even if they're not sick for COVID, because um if uh, basically if, if if they're positive, like it's a two week quarantine. So it's, it, it doesn't matter if there's lockdown or no lockdown. I'm going to be locked down for two weeks at a time if one of the kids turns up positive um, and they're both going to be back in school. And I'm grateful for that. But um, but not having a physical body in the house that could deal with that 
is, um, like it's, it's, it could be catastrophic, um, for me. Um, and it's, it, it is, it gives me a lot of anxiety, uh, worrying about that. So it's, it's been a constant concern, but it's, we've been able to manage it somewhat the, the few times that we had to happen once with my, my daughter, she was in a preschool program and, um, we had to do a two week, um, quarantine because she was exposed to somebody in her, her class that came up positive. And I was grateful that it only happened once out of the whole year. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, with the Delta variant and the kids not being vaccinated, um, I am super, super concerned. And I just am just praying that they approve the vaccine for the kids as soon as possible, because it, it would make me feel so much better. Um, but I'm, I'm really worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like same on that. I think that's, uh, the returning to school for, I think it depends on where you're at, right? I think it depends on your college campus, um, the kind, the, the politics of your state, um, because public health is politicized, um, and how much that plays into the pressures and kind of the stakeholder dimensions that influence effective campus policies. Um, I think like, same thing, I, my child's going to enter into kindergarten. Um, I, for now, uh, we're able to have kind of local control and have thresholds for the children and teachers wear masks or not based on current conditions in the county. I really appreciate that, but that doesn't um, take away all the worry that that stops. So we all got to quarantine and stay at home and we got to figure that out. And then my husband, um, we don't, he doesn't, he's an only child. He doesn't currently have um, elder care responsibilities, but that is a looming possibility um, and has been for many years. And um, we've been very worried. Um, I probably have worried more. And that's just the position, <laughs> the position I operate in our relationship um, about uh, the health and well being of his parents. But they live a couple states away. I mean, we've talked through contingency plans. If one of them were to get sick, um, to go for him to go and what that might look like, um, and then what it would look like if he had to come back and like how he might quarantine or like how do we go through those steps um, if and when we should have to deal with that. But it's, there's a lot of things to think about. I mean, we're going to bring, uh, this is our busiest time here at the University of Missouri. We have three um, cohorts of students in our main classroom building in the didactic classrooms for eight weeks. And this building is packed. It was built back in the 60s for when we had cohorts of about 60 students. Um, and now we have double that for three classes. And so mm -hmm. this is a lot of bodies in one space and a lot of Delta variant and a lot of wishy-washy masking and uncertain vaccine stuff. Um, you know, I, I think that they're all together. There's points of reflection that happen where we might challenge these long held assumptions that we're able to deal with. I think like if you are, uh, tapped into some of the chat around like a lot of folks um, bristling at people asking for accommodations for their entire careers. And then suddenly everybody gets them because it's a pandemic and we have to, and Hey, look, it worked out fine. Um, you know, there's a big push to kind of sweep all that under the rug and return to normal and pretend like nothing ever happened rather than this collective reflection and processing of this shared traumatic experience um, and how we might be better moving forward. And there's a tension for me because there's a, this fundamental belief that I have that I, we're all going to come together and that we can make something um, good and be progressive out of this. Um, and at the same time, it's kind of antithetical to the very American individualistic sentiment that tends to prevail. Um, so I don't know, I'm cautiously optim optimistic, because um, that's the only place I can really be. I don't know, gestures at everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovna, Debbie, any uh, oh. things that you're, um, uh, you know, biggest fear, but also kind of greatest opportunities during this next chapter? I think in the, at least in the UK, the, the vaccination rates are quite high now. So our kids go back to school in less than two weeks. And now it's thunder and lightning now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the, the rules here have changed. So if they're, if anybody's positive, it's only the close contacts that are sent home. Um, 
and if they test negative, then they don't have to self-isolate. So I don't have the same sort of fears as um, the others have mentioned on here. I think I think for me, what's been great has been this summer without academic teaching. And it's allowed me to reconnect with my children because I feel they have very much been sort of neglected for a long period of time. Um, so that has been really good. I think my fear now is going back into another academic year that I know is going to be full on. There's going to be a lot about mitigating COVID. Um, you know, how do we mitigate the impact of COVID? And that's going to be a lot of work on top of what we currently have to deliver. And semester two, which for us will start in January, the plans at the moment are that that will all be face to face. So that's another transition that we need to, to prepare for as well. And on top of that, it's going to be okay, supporting my children as well. You know, my eldest is entering secondary school. So, you know, it's academically, it's an important year, um, but not just academically, just in terms of their, their mental health. They've had no activities. You know, there's been no ho hockey, no sports. And I can sense that there's a fear in them. They don't particularly want to go back and do all of those things because they're out of the the habit of doing that and it's you know it that is going to take more emotional work as well to to deal with so I'd like to be optimistic but um right now I'm a little bit scared if I'm honest <laughs> so we're going to make sure you hang out with uh Tamara a little bit more <laughs> get on that optimism yeah optimism oh in the midst of chaos Debbie <laughs> <laughs> so because I don't have kids at home and I, I just my heart goes out to you guys because it, it would be so hard to I think Tamara you said kind of feel guilty all the time like like you weren't doing anything right because you were trying to get it all done and so that's a that's a common issue with, with people I suppose especially women I guess I hope and, and maybe this is just too naive but I'm going to say it anyway um, you know we've had an hour-long conversation about what are serious issues associated with being female in academia uh, uh, but London, I think you said we are fundamentally incredibly privileged that we are females in academia. And so um, I hope the universities take this opportunity to look outside the walls of the university and say, boy, oh boy, there are people who have way bigger problems than we do. What should this university be doing to acknowledge that, whether that be in, in the town where the university is located or internationally where some of their grants may be located? That... Um, that, you know, the, the problems that are compounded in poverty associated with the pandemic are just like 10x, 100x what we've been talking about. And so, so I hope maybe we, we don't get so head down that we forget that we live in this system which has dealt us a pretty good hand and that the universities need to be part of, of kind of being a member of the community on some of this. Um, so like I said, that may be way naive, but whatever. That's no, that's great. Uh, yeah, I do think that that sometimes we do need this reality check and that, um, you know, women and femmes of all kind of persuasions are experiencing, you know, slices and versions of this. So I want to end on uh, a happy note. Not necessarily. Well, yes, it can be happy. So what is your fantasy post pandemic plan? Uh, like what? Like, like mm. we're talking fantasy here. Like, <laughs> Not just like, oh yeah, I'm going back to the office and I get to go back to my lab because there's now like rubber gloves for me to like put on. <laughs> um, but like, what is your, like, what's that thing that you're, you know, angling to do post pandemic? So Debbie, I'm actually going to start with you. What, what are you going to do post pandemic when, when wh whoever the powers that be said, yeah, it's over. So we started a giant USAID grant in October of 2020, which normally would have included travel to all of the places that we were launching, like in-person launching. So you get to know these people. The whole project has been virtual. We haven't met our own team. We haven't met the groups over there. So, so I hope we get released to travel. But one, one thing that I can tell you is even though we've sort of felt this summer, okay, we turned some kind of a corner, Delta variant notwithstanding, but boy, when you're talking to Bangladesh or Uganda, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they turned a corner and then they turned right around and were faced with it all again. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about people not feeling good, but, you know, 
mothers dying. And I mean, just terrible, terrible stuff. And so I really hope that the world gets to the point where we can actually travel again because it's safe enough to travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovna, what's the post fantasy? I mean, I think again, it it will be it will be travel. I think you know, just to be able to to go and see family um, abroad and just spend time with people that you, you love and there because you know they're the people that we haven't been able to see. I mean, I I travelled last week to go and visit my sister and brother that I haven't seen for the um, best part of a year. And it, and it was great. You know, I was in tears leaving because it had been such a long time. So I think I, I'd like to to do more of that. But I think I also just want to be able to support my colleagues as well, my female colleagues, as well as all my colleagues in sort of the just making the environment and the culture much more supportive for everybody. And I think one of the things that we have learned from this is that you know, we we can really reflect on our future. We can work in different situations. We can work from anywhere. We we can adapt to to all the changes that we need to adapt to. Um, how much we travel, you know, we've got we can determine all of these things, um, and that's what I would really like to see. It's not such a hopefully it's not a fantasy, but um, I'd like to be able to see sort of a our community of staff and students just having a bit more flexibility in how we how we do things yeah mandy post-pandemic fantasy oh well um mine's very pragmatic um i think that this pandemic has really shown me that i physically cannot do it all by myself and um i am just hopeful that um that the grant writing will pay off and that I will be able to hire people to work in my lab so that when I have to quarantine again or something like this happens, that I'll have a team, that I'll personally have um, a team that will be able to help keep my lab running um, and uh, and allow me to to actually find some balance in my life again um, with my children and everything. I just, I just, um, I think that that's been the, the hardest thing is trying to keep all these balls in the air. And um, I, I definitely need help. And I'm also um, involved in a uh, new task force at the best school for re- recruitment and retention, um, which hasn't, I'm not even sure it's been formally uh, acknowledged or, or that the Dean knows that we're doing, I mean, he knows we're doing this, but we haven't really like, we haven't really um, advertised it that much, but um, but as a member of that task force, I hope that, you know, I can be a voice for, for our, um, especially our, our, the, the, the faculty that are, that are trying to start labs and, and get more women, um, the support that they need from the university to, to really emphasize the importance of providing that foundational funding to sort of help get hires done, hire people, um, in the core resources that we need and, um, just, you know, provide them the the emotional and, and financial support because it really is about financial support to help uh, women be successful in academia. So, Tamara, post pandemic fantasy. Oh, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I think uh, travel is a big one. But first, I want to um, so in during the pandemic for about a year now, um, I've been a uh, part of this academic mothers group. Um, that we met on social media, Twitter, um, and we, we meet about weekly via Zoom and we gripe, set uh, writing our productivity goals and then also self-care goals. And it's just been a really nourishing, um, supportive community. So a uh, huge shout out and love to Kiana, Rachel, Adrian, and Megan. I can't wait to meet them IRL uh, when this is all over. But uh my husband and I really want to travel and we want to travel with our kid. Um, growing up as two working class family kids who only went to visit people and have zero concept of like a vacation or seeing the world. And I've reflected a lot as an academic, like the substitute for that for me is now is like conferences. Like that still work as like going to visit family, but like it's coded differently now and it feels different or like professional. So no, we're going to go on some legit vacations. Um, and it's been fun to just fantasize about that as a family and then go to the library and get books and research about places. Our kids been obsessed with the pyramids and Egypt and Sphinx and all these kinds of things. So we're like, oh, heck yeah, let's do that. 
So um, just being able to travel widely um, and to see the world and share that experience with my my small family is um, my fantasy, hopefully reality plan for the post-pandemic world. Good, good deal. So uh, my, uh, I, I am looking forward to kind of getting back um, uh, to certainly some work travel, just kind of some of DEI work is hard to do remotely. You need to be able to read the room. And even though I've gotten better at reading the Zoom, the reading Zoom, it's not quite the same, right? Um, uh, one of my fantasies is that my daughter is able to resume her kind of collegiate experience. It was abruptly, you know, ended. Uh, she came home for spring break and it's been here ever since. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So, but one thing that, I mean, it's not post pandemic and I will be testing and doing all the things, but I am going on vacation. And as much as folks are like, I want to go on vacation with my family. I do not. I will be going <laughs> <laughs> by myself in about eight weeks uh, to, uh, to Mexico for just like, I'm just going to be a rotisserie chicken on the beach. Just, just <sighs> me flipping myself over um, for a few days just to, 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 just to rest. And I think that, you know, all of us need to, to be really, really mindful and supportive of um, not only women, but everyone really trying to find ways of practicing, um, you know, self-care and, and well-being and taking care of ourselves and taking care of one another. So with that, I will thank each of you for uh, joining me and participating in this conversation. It's just been really rich and, uh, and um, encouraging and depressing because <laughs> there were things post pre-pandemic that I hope, you know, just vanish. That's the other thing for my fantasy. I just hope that a lot of, of the things that, that have just been exacerbated by the pandemic actually are able to, to fade away entirely post-pandemic. So thank you, um, Mandy, Tamara, Lovna, Debbie, for, for joining me. This has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again, thank you to my guests. Be sure to subscribe to the show um, on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook. Shout out to all those wonderful, wonderful faculty members doing the hard, hard work. I um, joke with folks all the time that didn't think that online education was really a thing. They thought, ah, you give them listen to some YouTube videos. Yeah, no. Like, so shout out to folks doing, doing the hard work with online education as uh, the semester starts. Um, we will be back on the, um, back with another show later this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank, Thank you. you.